Hey everyone, it's Luke. This week on Range, we welcome Jeff Ketchel, Executive Director of the Washington State Public Health Association. Jeff has worked in public health his whole career, including stints as administrator of two separate health districts in Washington, Grant County, so imagine Moses Lake and parts beyond, and Snohomish County, sort of covering Seattle's northern suburbs and Everett, but also the mountainous rural areas around Highway 2, like Monroe, Gold Bar, Startup, uh, Mount Baker, Wilderness area. Startup, actually, interestingly, this is what happens when you Google Maps and then uh, start Wikipedia things. Startup Washington, not named after startup culture, not trying to attract Microsoft expats, no... Named after a dude named Startup. His last name was Startup. It's a weird name. Probably cut that part. So, <laughs> or maybe I'll leave it in. That was some big Norm MacDonald energy. Totally unintentional. So he has a pretty broad experience working in conservative areas and more progressive areas. And if that title administrator sounds familiar, well, that's the role held by Amelia Clark here in Spokane. So Jeff's not a doctor. He's never filled the Bob Lutz role, but he's filled the Amelia Clark role, and he knows what it's like to co-lead and administer an organization like the Spokane Regional Health District alongside a medical officer like Lutz. This new role as executive director of the WS <laughs> of the WSPHA makes him sort of the advocate in chief for public health in Washington State. You know, like public health might seem like the sort of thing that wouldn't need advocacy, like rainbows don't need advocacy. Happy hours don't need advocacy. You just kind of like seeing them. You want to go to them. You like public health. You want to feel publicly healthy. But it's actually pretty hard out there for a public health officer and or administrator, and not just in the era of coordinated anti-masking campaigns. In Washington, the most mundane risk to public health historically is maybe the most dangerous. Decades of underfunding. I'll talk about that in a second. Another risk is how our particular strain of frontier individualism translated into nearly as many autonomous health districts as we have counties in this state. Anyone who's listened to the show for a while knows it's kind of a recurring theme to point out the holes in Washington's progressive bona fides. I think most of us feel like we live in a progressive state, or at least a liberal state, and in some ways we do. And especially the closer we get to present day, the more progressive Washington state gets, and certainly we're above average uh, nationally. But we're also stubbornly libertarian in a lot of ways, and especially the further you go back in our state's history. Our near-complete reliance on sales tax instead of, say, an income tax hammers the poorest of us, putting a disproportionate burden on the people that can least afford to pay for it. It also makes our tax revenue a lot more volatile, so when times get tough, people get anxious and they spend less across the board, true of rich people and poor people. And when people spend less, it leaves less tax revenue in the coffers for things like public education and, you guessed it, public health. And our patchwork public health system is where that frontier libertarianism really shines through. We have a state board, but the way the public health law was written in 1967, a very long time ago, power was given to each county. People like local control, and I get that, but what it means in effect is that public health policy usually stops at the county line, while, as has been made abundantly clear in the last 18 months, viruses and other communicable diseases ignore all borders. Yikes, Baumgarten, what's next? Well, okay, now let's bring in the anti-maskers, the anti-vaxxers, the marches to health directors' front lawns, the heavily armed reopen protests. All of those examples are literally just from Spokane off the top of my head at this moment while I was scripting this out real quick. So it's no wonder that about a quarter of our state's health district officers have quit, resigned, taken early retirement, or been fired. One quarter. We'll talk about those stats a little bit more later. 
It's a stressful job under ideal conditions, and insofar as you're trying to communicate to an entire population of people, it's never going to be ideal conditions. You add a pandemic to the mix and a low level of societal cohesion, and things get really, really stressful. And a lot of those stresses fall directly on the rank-and-file employees, where there have been a lot of resignations as well. All of this creates a big gap in institutional knowledge, which is kind of vital, institutional knowledge, kind of vital for the long, patient, incremental work of public health. All right, take a deep breath with me. One more. Because it is not all doom and gloom out there in public health land. Before we get there, if you like what we're up to at range, if you like us landing in your phone each week with a fresh set of crushing problems to solve, seasoned with a little bit of hope at the end, you can support us at rangemedia.co slash subscribe. We keep everything we do, the newsletter, the podcast, free for everyone, always, because we are trying to make content that is vital to everyone so we can all make smarter decisions about our lives and have a bigger impact on this place we love. And we don't believe your ability to make an impact should be hampered by your ability to pay for a podcast, so we keep it free. But that means we need those of you who can afford to support us to do so. So if you're one of those people, head to rangemedia.co slash subscribe. Sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already and kick us a few bucks. It's 10 bucks a month or $100 a year. Again, that's rangemedia.co slash subscribe. And when we get new subscribers, it makes all of us at Range HQ very happy. There's an increasing number of us here at Range HQ. We all get pretty uniformly happy. And when we feel happy, good news tends to follow. Like the following. Legitimate reasons to be optimistic about the future of our public health system in Washington state. In response to the pandemic, point one, the legislature voted a historic and permanent, underscore bold, italicized permanent influx of public health funding. We'll talk about that in detail during the interview. Point two, we mentioned the brain drain earlier. There is a fresh group of starry-eyed dreamers entering the ranks of public health professionals, which means that people are seeing the crisis and they're choosing public health as a career. They want to lead lives of meaning and public health seems like a pretty good place to have a long, meaningful career. So maybe that great resignation we mentioned above will actually lead to renewed vigor and leading edge ideas. And so that's cool. Kind of a uh, silver lining situation there. Point three, the legislature also passed a law that fundamentally changes how boards of health are composed requiring a lot more professionals to serve than electeds and random appointees, which is kind of the situation we currently have. The big reform would have been putting all of these health districts under the direct jurisdiction of the state, but theoretically, this will give medical officers a team of peers to lean on and consult with when times get tough, rather than, you know, the potential firing squad we witnessed in Spokane last year. So there we go. Fresh ideas and energy, better funding, and real structural change in theory but it's looking good. The devil is in the details, obviously, and we're going to wade into all of those details. I looking for the devil. I, I never really thought about how that metaphor really works out if you work it all the way through until now. But yeah, it's a jam-packed episode. Jeff Ketchell helps us find the devil and also a couple angels, hopefully, in the details of public health coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range.
My guest today is Jefferson Ketchell, Executive Director of the Washington State Public Health Association. Jeff has been a health director in Grant County and Snohomish County, and now he lives in Spokane, and he is the Executive Director of WSPHA. That's going to be, that's a tough acronym. I'm going to be stumbling over that all episode. So I couldn't think of a better person to chat with about the topic of, of public health. So thanks for coming on, Jeff. My pleasure. So happy to be here today. So I've got a ton of questions. I just want to jump in with the serious stuff right off the bat. Um, are you named after Jefferson Airplane or Starship? Uh, according to my parents, I was named after Thomas Jefferson. Oh, that would be that was the third possibility I didn't think of. What's, what's funny is I really like the name Jefferson, uh, and I really hate the name Jeffrey. And so uh, over the years, some people you know just assume I'm a Jeff, so I'm a Jeffrey. Yeah, and, right. And I cringe, and if it's somebody that I like, I'll correct them and... Somebody I don't like, I'll just let it li- let it lie. Don't come around Jeff with Jeffrey in your mouth. That's right. That's right. So I I usually put Jefferson in my signature line just to make sure people know I'm not a Jeffrey. <laughs> That's funny. So tell me about the WSPHA and its role. Sure. So the Washington State Public Health Association, we are the state affiliate of the American Public Health Association, which is uh, the preeminent public health uh, association in, in, in America. And... Uh, in Washington State, we have two big roles. One is education, and every year we put on a splendid, the premier public health conference in Washington State. Wow. And uh, the last year it was virtual, and it will be virtual again this year, and it's taking place October 13th through 15th and 18th and 19th uh, virtually, and we have a lot of great uh, speakers coming up to talk about COVID and the epidemic of despair and health system transformation and, and a lot a lot of great things. But we're also going to talk about politics and public health, and we have some great speakers and panels set up to chat about that. And uh, really excited about that. And the other half of what we do is advocacy. And so we are 501c6, so we have great latitude in doing uh uh, lobbying and advocate work. Um, we coordinate the Public Health Roundtable, which is a group of public health-minded organizations that want to see public health well-funded and, and well-operated. And so uh, we, we pull our resources and put together and hire a lobbyist and, and lobby for things in Olympia that are important to public health. And uh, public health funding has been a body work we've worked on for the past 10 years with many other folks around the state. And uh, we had great success in Olympia this year, finally. That's awesome. And we'll be talking about that um, legislation coming up. But, you know, time is a flat circle. Things are as bad or worse than they were last summer and some places as bad as they were last winter. So maybe we could just start with an update. Like it seems like hell out there. How are communities coping and how are public health officials specifically holding up? Sure. So, I mean, just watching the news and and talking to the people that I know, everyone's tired. Well, I mean, obviously the public is tired. The public is tired of wearing a mask and not being able to, you know, freely do what they want to do. My wife and I have tickets to um, Death Cab for Cutie coming up here in uh, in Spokane in the next couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we have to provide our vaccination card or negative COVID test. Of course, my wife and I are both vaccinated. She's a, she's a nurse. Right. And uh, so that's not a problem for us. But, you know, people are, are tired of this, this alternate reality that we're in. And uh, so I think that, and then the public health official side, and I'm definitely not speaking for them, but uh, the ones I've talked to and just from what I've seen, they are beat up. They're tired. Uh, They've really gone through the ringer. Uh, You know, here we're, you know, we can see two years down, down the road here of this. I mean, so many of them, you know, it's been a lot of seven day week work. It's, it's constantly, uh, I remember just being a health district director myself 
And it was sometimes a seven day a week job without a pandemic. During normal times. During during normal times, you know, we'd have an outbreak of pertussis or I would get, you know, we were constantly on 24 seven call and I'd get a weird call about something somewhere Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, it, it just happens. But I couldn't imagine being an administrator or a health officer amidst a pandemic like this. And for that's been going on for so long. There's a really powerful piece in Crosscut that we're going to link to that you sent me. It begins with a health director in Bellingham saying she, she has the worst job in Whatcom County. I feel more like an elected official than I ever wanted to because I've become the target of all this public anger, she said. It's just a hellstorm starting on day one. So that sounds pretty representative. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's very tired. I mean, I, I really admire her outspokenness in the article. Uh, and that really kind of speaks to one, one thing in public health is uh, like with communicable disease, if you see uh, a case, five cases of X in an outbreak, uh, one case sometimes equals 20 or 30 cases in reality that aren't getting that aren't getting tested or, or found. And so um, so often communicable disease rates are underreported. So for uh, administrator or director or health officer to talk about in the media just very uh, bluntly, about how they're feeling about things really speaks volumes about how they're really feeling or how their organization is feeling. So, so I really admire what, what she, she and others had to say in that article. Yeah. So Spokane obviously is familiar with uh, the firing of a uh, health officer, Bob Lutz, but it's a statewide problem. Health leaders have been fired from their jobs in at least nine of Washington's 39 counties, Grays Harbor, Lewis, Mason, Okanagan, Spokane, Walla Walla, Whatcom, Whitman, and Yakima. And then the Chelan-Douglas Health District, which is sort of a two-county sort of blanket health district, that brings the number of total counties to 11, which is like over 25% of the county. There's only 39 counties in Washington State. So that's a massive, intense loss of institutional knowledge across a quarter of our health districts. Like, I don't know if there's a specific question there. It was more just like, holy shit, to me when I read the stat. But it suggests to me, knowing the way that this sort of stuff works, it's like maybe that that loss of institutional knowledge, it appears to come with, at least in the case of the Spokane Health District, comes with loss of uh, rank-and-file employees as well. Like, you know, quitting, either quitting under the same stress situations or quitting in protest because their, you know, their leader just got you know, taken out. Are there going to be long-term repercussions for what's happening right now beyond COVID and beyond, you know? So what's interesting is about, about five years ago, I started being part of real discussions about the silver tsunami. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and the, I'm, I'm Gen X and uh, we're, we were looking at the, all the boomers in public health yeah. that, that were there to change the world. And, and a lot of them certainly did that were approaching retirement age or, or actually surpassing retirement age, but still in, in the work. And so we knew we were going to lose a lot of institutional knowledge, a lot of leadership in the system. So that, that was a foregone conclusion. But then you, you layer a, a pandemic on top of it. And uh, some of them didn't retire. So, you know, I was planning to retire at the end of 2020 or mid-2020 and didn't. They stuck out around, but now they're finally getting to the point where it's like, you know, it's time for me to go. You know, I want to spend time with my grandkids or, or go off on my great adventure with my spouse. And so they, they did. But you throw in the extra, the politics of the situation where either people just got so worn out from either the, the shenanigans of the politics or abuse from the public or the seven-day-a-week stress of the job. Right. And and you throw that in with, with the, the planned retirements anyway. And yes, we've seen this mass exodus. 
And then and then reading that article, you, you hear people saying, I'm going to stick this out to the end of the pandemic, you know, whenever, whenever that is. Right. Um, but then I'm, I might go do something different. Uh, this may be it for me. Uh, I was planning on doing this till, uh, till retirement, but I'm not so sure anymore. And so that, I mean, you add all these things together and you're like, oh, this is a real problem. Now, on the flip side of it, uh, we have this wonderful pipeline of public health schools pumping out bachelor's and master's degree public health students who really want to, the, the millennial and, and, and I don't know, what's, what's the generation after millennials? The Zoomers. The Zoomers. I mean, they, they have that same sort of energy to change the world. And uh, not not less a cynical Gen X guys and, and girls, <laughs> but um, they really want to change the world. And so we're seeing a lot of, of students being produced that are wanting to go into public health. But without that balance of mentorship and and people to help guide them and, and help put help get them on the right path, there's going to be some struggle out there. I just add, let's add another layer on top of this. Sorry, Luke. No, but, you're good. But Keep I going. mean, the public health funding. We're going to talk about this. Yeah. So so suddenly these agencies who have been underfunded for two decades. I mean, under, and we can go deep into that one if you want, but underfunded for two decades are suddenly going to have some resources to hire people. Wow, yeah. And, and so there's going to be this huge demand to hire epidemiologists and, and outreach workers and disease investigators and environmental health specialists, et cetera. A lot of them are going to be new grads. And so we're going to have a huge population, a huge amount of workforce that are going to be very new to public health uh, work. And uh, that's going to be interesting to see how, how that falls out. To, on the topic of like the political shenanigans, um, and I don't know how much you're going to want to say about this, but it struck me that Whitman, Walla Walla, and Spokane counties were all on that list. Those are at least in the fifth district, and I would I would imagine from you know basically the Cascades East. Those are three of the more progressive counties in a pretty conservative region, which seems to suggest that there's the stress of the pandemic, but then also maybe the added stress of the culture war. Have you been hearing, like, either from your former colleagues in Moses Lake or, or in Spokane here, like, is it additionally tough sort of being a public health worker in a, in a more conservative county? Or In looking at the public health system, you, if you look at one health department or one health district, you're really just going to understand one health department or one health district. And, and just, just to kind of broaden this, we are a completely decentralized public health system in Washington. Right. So, uh, I mean, there are states like, like Georgia and Virginia, that are, Florida, that are centralized, where basically there are no local health departments. They're all satellites of the state health department. And the, the quote-unquote local health directors are actually state employees. Okay, so that's centralized. Idaho is a regional system where you have these regional health districts where you have a bunch of counties coming together to form a region. There's a panhandle health panhandle district. Panhandle health, right. So yeah, it's yeah. like that's like four, the top four, four counties? Yeah, four or five counties. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. And so they've they sort of this hybrid. But in Washington, you know, out here in the West, frontier-minded, libertarian-esque, you know, feelings, you know, <laughs> we're, we're sort of on our own attitudes. And so we're, we're just decentralized. So every county, even though counties are technically agents of the state um, as, as structured, counties, uh, governments are required to stand up a health department or a health district. Health department meaning it's, it's part, of like part of the county. Health district meaning it's a special purpose district aside from the county, even though the county is still responsible for it, which we have here in Spokane. And they're responsible for delivering public health services to a state minimum standard. And that state minimum standard is what's in the state law, the RCWs and the WACs. And so you'll look at one, you understand one. And so everyone's different. And so, right. <laughs> and that, that's, that's part of, that's been always been part of the challenge too. So in looking at, you know, that's a red county, that's a blue county, that's a purple county. They're really quite different. I mean, there are red counties out there that really support their public health agency and have great 
you know, very good relationships between the board and the, and the leadership and, and do the best they can in the environment they are in. Right. And so I don't want to paint it all with one, one sure. shade or totally. another. Yeah, totally. Uh, and so, I mean, every, every, every place is a little bit different. And so, but there are certainly places that the conflict is great. And some of those conflicts have resulted in departures. And, and that's really unfortunate because it's really hard to find good administrators, directors, health officers to run these agencies, knowing not only the, the, the broad body of work that they have to perform, but also that the sort of the situation that they're in being in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Do you know, at being sort of yourself part of, you know, the, the state director of a, of a national organization, is it easier for those centralized health districts officers to then to sort of be above the local level fray, do you think? Or have you seen any, have you heard anything about that? So like in, in Florida, for example, where there's, we know there's a ton of uh, controversy. Right. Has it been easier in a centralized system like that for the local officials to just sort of keep their heads down and do their jobs? I don't really know in centralized versus decentralized. I do know whether or not I, I had there. There's a really great report out uh, from the National Network of Public Health Law and okay. the National Association of City and County Health Officials talking about legislatures around the country that have either attempted or have passed laws to curtail public health authority. And so I'd say in those states, that's where I would be most concerned. Places like Montana, Idaho. Obviously, there's you know a lot of lot going on like Tennessee and 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 other places. The more you limit the ability for the public health entities to do their work, whether that's quarantine and isolation, whether that's require masks, whether that's to say to a barber shop, you know you can't operate because we're in this pandemic because of the close contacts you have with your customers. Uh, those sort of public health powers and authorities that that agencies have are important. But if legislatures aren't supportive of those things, then they pass laws to curtail it. And that's that's some of the things in Texas, too. I mean, those are the things that I would be most worried about. And so I'm grateful that we're here in Washington State where our legislature uh, has shown support for public health and proposed there have been bills proposed, but they haven't. Gone gotten, yeah. gotten any traction whatsoever. Yeah, we, I think we're all familiar with the ferocity and depth of the science de- denial. I feel like it took me a little bit surprised, maybe the depth of it. I'd, I'd seen the ferocity over the years in, in sort of smaller groups. I, was, I guess I was surprised at the depth of it nationally. A lot of the blame gets laid at Trump's feet, but and I know you you sort of took a little bit of issue with the way Crosscut quoted you in this article, but you kind of suggested a different causality that I wanted to talk through. They're quoting you. So you set the stage for public health being an operative of the nanny state, science being questionable, and then boom, let's throw a pandemic on this society and see what happens, you said. None of this is surprising for someone who's worked for a while in public health, suggesting that, you know, Trump kind of just caught a wave. Yeah, I mean, this this already existed. So, So public health is offering security. Right. And, and we look at the 20th century, and life expectancy in the United States improved by, on average, like 35 years, wow. the average yeah, American. Right. Yep. And a lot of that was because of public health. I mean, healthcare played a role, a lot of things, but you, but you look at how we look at smoking and, and, and smoking indoors. We look at motor vehicle laws. We look at workplace safety. Uh, we look at access to vaccines. We look at how many fewer people now are dying of heart attacks because of education around CPR and available of defibrillators in our communities. You think, you think about safe food and water. I mean, that was the big killer in a lot of, and still is in a lot of countries around the world is, is diarrheal illness. Right. Um, I mean, we have a wonderfully safe water system. 
I don't know. I still don't understand why people buy bottled water in most of the country. Uh, <laughs> you're really just buying a plastic bottle. Right. But um, right. I won't. I won't go go into that one. That's that's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> <laughs> but but and, and so so public health has really delivered on this, and a lot of this has been policy driven. This has been laws and mandates. You, you go back to George Washington in Valley Forge. He mandated the smallpox inoculations amongst his troops to stave off a smallpox outbreak. Right. So, so and, and yeah, some of them died. You talk about you talk about risk reward. Right. 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 <laughs> so I mean, they were basically just like spitting into each other's mouths. That's how like inoculations worked back then. Was like you got smallpox here. Give me a little bit of that. They, they would they would <laughs> cut. They would take a knife and cut your skin and then put some of the pus from an infected person right, into exactly. your skin. Good grief. I mean, I mean, th- there you go. It's, so so that that was security to protect, try to protect the majority of his troops. Well, and, and to that point, like that was the largest casualty of the Revolutionary War on the American side was smallpox. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that we would have lost the war if not for these mandated inoculations. Probably. Maybe. Yeah. Potentially. <laughs> Maybe. So public health has delivered great life expectancy. Yeah. And then in the 21st century, we're going, OK, people are living longer but we're not necessarily as healthy. And so, so right. people, uh, because of obesity, because of arthritis, because of uh, cancer, because of diabetes, and so how do we now improve healthy years of life? And so that's been, that's been one of our, our great efforts in the 21st century is, is healthy years of life and, and combating chronic disease. And so, uh, so public health has, there's still plenty of work for public health to do, but, but all of a sudden we're saying, okay, so there's this pandemic and, and I always like the graphic of the slices of Swiss cheese. Have you seen that one? Maybe. So there's like think think of think of slices of Swiss cheese with the holes in them. Okay. And what you're doing is trying to protect yourself from from COVID. Okay. And the more slices you put between you and COVID, the more likely it is there won't be a direct hole between all the way through. All the way through. That makes sense. Yeah. So so you get the vaccine, you wear a mask, you wash your hands, you minimize your indoor environments, you you socially distance when you can. And you add all these cheese, slices of cheese, and suddenly, you know, there's enough, you know, risk reduction that it is extremely likely that you'll get COVID. And so, so it's just like with public health, whether it's, it's tobacco or safe, you know, I used to, I got my start as a restaurant inspector. I was a restaurant at Pike Place Market, Rainier Valley Central District in Seattle. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, you wash your hands. Yeah, you got to cook the food to a certain temperature. Yeah, your refrigerator's got to keep the food cold. You get all these things to reduce the risk of E. coli or salmonella or things like that. Same, same kind of idea. Just real quick to sort of help people understand the delineation between public health and then our healthcare system at large. What you're t- sort of talking about is public health is focused on the entire population and really about like the prevention of disease, premature death, stuff like that, which yes. is why we get the restaurant inspector as part of the health, uh, the public health community, just like the person who's like trying to track and trace STDs is, right? Because right. what you're trying to prevent is society-wide prevention of illness as opposed to the treatment of illness, which is what the healthcare system does. Right, right. So, I mean, public health role is to prevent illness, injury, and premature death. Okay. That, that, that's a broad responsibility. Oh, which is why there's also seatbelt laws. Are yeah, yeah, that too. There, you yeah, go. Yeah. there you go. There you go. So the healthcare system is designed to treat, yeah, treat the sick individual. And I always like to say, say somebody has mumps yeah. and, and they get sick and they get put in the hospital. So the hospital is going to take great care of them to cure them of that mumps. So that's one person. Right. But then the public health system's job is to protect, here in Spokane County, the 
the other 500 plus thousand people to not get mops. And so, and so that's the differentiation. Now, now they need to work in concert and they need to be great partners. And they need to work closely together, but, but they do have some very different roles and the healthcare system will take great care of their population, but their population are their patients. Yeah. Whether, whether it's, it's patients who, who use them as a service or are in their hospital. And for us in public health, our population is everybody who lives or visits the county. Right. And so, so that, that, that's, that's a lot of work. And so the best and most efficient way to address those things are through policies and systems. Yeah. You might think back in the, I remember my early career, it was all about make a brochure or put up a billboard or set up a website when, when the internet started. Yeah, uh, right. And that we're going to make behavior change because somebody got a brochure. Right. I don't know how many people stopped smoking because they got a brochure about how smoking was bad. Right. But I think a lot of people stopped smoking when... In Washington State, the Citizens Initiative passed that banned smoking in, in bars and bars and restaurants, where suddenly it may probably became easier for a bar worker or a wait or a waiter to quit smoking because they were no longer surrounded by cigarettes all day. Good point. And even if it doesn't do that, it at least sort of limits the places that people who don't smoke come into contact with smoke as well, right? Which right, is right. And, and it doesn't normalize the behavior yeah, right. for, for our kids who see it. So that's actually kind of a nice uh, transition to this next question. So much of public health then is about behavior change. Have you, it probably hasn't surprised you how resilient the sort of like anti-mask, anti-vax thinking has been. But is, is there anywhere where you're seeing people making, uh, health officers making a decent headway against the disinformation? Or is it all kind of bad news that people are just sort of entrenched in their places? Or, or where are we making headway? Well, I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think Seattle uh, was the first major city in the country yeah. to hit I think 70 percent. Yeah. So I think I think there are definitely places, and there's been there's been this broad discussion about herd immunity. Well, yeah. you know, and what is that number? And so you know, for us in this in a, in the city or in the county, we want to hit this herd immunity rate of whether it's seventy or eighty or ninety percent. And, and I see it all over the place. And I don't. I'm not even sure what it is at this point. Right. But the herd immunity you really got to focus on is the herd immunity of people who you you are around. And so whether that's your family, whether that's your coworkers, whether it's the people you go to church with, um, that's your herd, so to speak. And, and be, how are you mindful of the herd immunity in that circle? And so, um, and that's where you need to think about. And so I, I really was intrigued by the article in the Inlander recently where they interviewed or attempted to interview a number of elected officials right, yep. about not only their vaccination status, but how are they encouraging others to get vaccinated? Right. And so, and so I think about herd immunity, uh, you know, how are you encouraging those in your herd to be vaccinated or to add slices of Swiss cheese to their prevention? I mean, it was noted that 25% of the health district board in Spokane gave a no comment answer on that, which... I don't, I, you probably don't want to speak directly. <laughs> well, maybe, I, I, let me let me speak broadly, and yeah. and uh, I use that term broadly a lot, but um, <laughs> maybe the better term is vaguely. But um, <laughs> but in thinking about if I'm an administrator, director, health officer of an agency, I am better able to do my job if I have the support of the board that I work for. Of course, and yeah. and, and that board walks the walk of what we are promoting. And whether that's getting a vaccine or wearing a mask or whether that's getting, you know, you're having a, f I, w I once had a situation where a local elected official was having this fundraiser for their reelection campaign and they were going to have this fajita feed at their property. And that's op quote unquote open to the public. You need a temporary food permit to do that. Right. And they didn't get one. 
they, well, they well, well we reached out to them and say because we saw it in the newspaper that they were having. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> like, you better get in, you know, and they did. Yeah, and they, yeah, yeah. But but they and they didn't fight back, right? Which was great, and I appreciated yeah. that. Yeah. But but it's a matter of walking the walk, you know, you know, role modeling the behavior you want to see in the people that you represent. Yeah. And is that happening? Not to the greatest extent I would want it to happen. And then a different person who said he was vaccinated was basically saying it's a personal choice. I'm not going out and proselytizing about vaccines. So in your mind, obviously, it's kind of important to do both things, right? Especially for elected officials, especially for health board members to be like, hey, I got the vaccine and you should too. It's going to be maybe one of those ways that we can sort of change minds a person at a time. Yeah, and I know how tough it is. I was raised by an uh, anti-vaccine mom. Wow. I'm a huge disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> the only vaccine I had as a youth was yellow fever. Wow. And that's because we went to Trinidad and Tobago on a vacation and it was required. Wow. Otherwise, I had all the school exemptions. Now, people may argue, well, you see, you lived, you were fine. I'm like, yeah, I got, I got lucky. Right. You know, I, I'll just admit I got lucky. But my first day in public health when I was 22, I had five vaccines that day. Yeah. Three in one arm, two in the other. And I'm grateful for that. And no adverse reactions whatsoever. Yeah. And I'm glad, and all, all three of our kids are, are completely vaccinated, even with HPV. So, I mean, it's, 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 I really believe in vaccines. They are a blessing of science, and uh, they have saved countless millions of lives in this world. Yeah. Maybe this is a good time to then shift into the sort of the talk about the board structure, talk about the changes to some of the laws. And we've already hinted at it, but it's kind of like the way this thing was built in Washington State specifically every county gets to sort of build its own health district or health department, mm -hmm. basically. Yes. And a lot of the chaos seemed sort of exacerbated by the composition of the health boards themselves. And the state law creating them is either, so it's 50 years old, and as far as I could tell, was last amended in, in 1993. So the year of Mariah Carey's dream lover might have been the last <laughs> time we took a look at our public health law. I couldn't verify that, but that's on the statute. It says the most recent revision was 1993, which, I mean, I'm a child of the 90s, but it still does not really feel like the modern era to me anymore. Uh, we had a conversation off mic about how old we both feel. And, uh, and so, I mean... <laughs> So if I'm reading the law right, the discretion up until now was really, really broad. It was basically like, hey, county commissioners, just create boards, you're in charge. And so up in Whatcom, that, that woman we quoted earlier, it's I think the Whatcom County Board is literally just the county commissioners all sit on the board and there's nobody else. In Spokane, it seems to be a mix of there's the three county commissioners, there's the mayor, there's at least one city council representative in Spokane and a couple other representatives of like smaller towns. It's a total of 12, three at-will positions as well. But again, these are all either, they're either elected officials or they're appointed by elected officials. That's more or less it. That's more or less the way it's worked up until now. Is there any nuance I'm missing? Or? Yeah, so each one, each one is different for sure. And when the, the county sets up its, its Board of Health bylaws, you know, whether they choose to have a department or a district, uh, in some cases, multi-county districts, right? Like, like, like ben, Douglas like, and Chanel. And yeah, yeah, right. Benton Franklin, yeah. Northeast Tri-County, just north of us. Right. They, they, they sort of decide these things, and, and what is the Board of Health membership? Right. And, and, and then set it off. And so, yeah, you definitely have some counties out there where the Board of Health is just the three county commissioners, and that's it. Now, I, when I worked for the Grant County Health District, it was the three county commissioners plus six city council representatives. Now, so it was mm -hmm. nine, yeah. all elected officials, right? but it, it definitely had diversity of representation from, from throughout the county. Right. And, and, you know, and then some places, like here in Spokane, you have the three non-electeds 
who yeah. are each appointed by one of the county commissioners. Right. And so, and so it, it has this great variation around the state. And so what, what 1152 does is it tries to inject some health expertise into that board from non-elected officials. Yeah. Uh, I remember when in Grant County, one of my city council member reps was a physician. And that, that had great bonus, uh, you know. Uh, he and I didn't always agree, but but uh, but he had that expertise that was very invaluable sometimes. And so, but but that was that was really random luck that that we we had him on the board of health. So, and, and if you read eleven fifty two as it was passed, it's 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 convoluted because there were different rules and and you know the sausage making, the right. negotiations, the carve outs. Uh, right. You're going to find a lot of that in there, but 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 generally what it says. Is if you have a board of health that's just elected officials, and you have a public health advisory committee that was in place by January first of twenty twenty one, then um, uh, you can continue as that. But but if you have elected and non elected officials, then you have to add more non elected officials. It's 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 strange. Really but, but, but the yeah. intention, and there was a other bill called 1110 that was the original idea that came from Representative Riccelli yeah, right. from here in the 6th District. That, and and so, so it's kind of evolved over time, and you're going to see these carve-outs to try to kind of get more people to, to vote for it. Um, so anyway, it's, it's having more appointed people. Is there any sort of requirement that they have to be health experts, doctors, public health people, or...? Oh, oh, for for sure. Okay, and so, good. and so, with with uh, boards of health that are having to comply with this, you know, there are people like epidemiologists, community health workers, people with master's degree in public health, physicians, nurses, dentists, and there's there's like three different buckets. But the, it's still going to be the county commissioners who select these people. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, but but there's there's a huge list that they have to pick from. Yeah. Um, okay. So. That's fascinating. So, because I was, I listened to the hearing that um, Dr. Lutz, you know, about Dr. Lutz's firing at the state board, which is a, a vastly different composition. It's the state board is yes. smaller than Spokane's uh, board, which uh, did not pass my notice. But then the other thing is, it's mostly there's like a sanitation guy. There's a tribal representative who works, but somebody who yes. works in public health. There's a. It's mostly public health officials. Bob Lutz is actually on that board. Ironically, yeah. <laughs> Ironically, yeah, he was the he, he was uh, you know um, he's the health officer rep because he's still the health officer for Asotin County for Asotin County, right down way down in, in southeastern Washington. And so basically, it just seemed to me that the conversation was um, you know, and there's a conversation about you know this is a democracy, so we should have some democratic representation on these boards so that they're you know directly you know beholden to the will of the people. I don't know if I agree with that, but that's at least the the language around it. Like I'm totally fine with certain boards being just made up of people who actually know what the hell they're doing. Like that's especially when it comes to stuff like public health, but that's an argument for a different day. Like the conversation was so much more about the facts or about generally accepted standards of care or generally in this case, which is like generally accepted standards of like, wow, it definitely seems like there's enough to go take this to an investigation to at least do the investigation. It was, it was, I've sat in on meetings of elected officials where they're going around for hours. There was just one at the, um, at the North Idaho college on a completely unrelated note about a mask mandate that was 
two hours of them talking about basically the way they were going to word the motion because none of them wanted to come out and say, we just don't believe in masks. Right. So there was like <laughs> this, this by contrast was like a really crisp, like 30 minute meeting where like looked at the facts and like, yep, cool. We're going to, we're going to make this an investigation and we're out. That strikes me as so much more sane and, and the, the sort of proper way to do things. I don't know if there's a question there. It just seems like we should have been doing this all along. And despite the carve outs, you think it's going to get better from here with this new law? Time will tell. It, it's, 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 this, is, this is a you know, brave new idea. This is a yeah. new venture. I, I generally am warm to the idea of having more non-electeds on boards of health that have specific expertises in public health. Yeah. I, think, I think that's, that's a net gain for the system and for the population that they serve. So I'm, I'm definitely in favor of that. I mean, this is, this is a, a confusing... This is, it's, I had to reread it again before the right. broadcast today right. because it, it, it's, it's a little confusing. Um, but I know the intentions are good regarding Board of Health makeup. Um, I, I think some of it was definitely born out of frustration. I mean, but you think about the system of governance we have in whether it's county, cities, or the state. You know, we, we set it up, you know, with, as, a, as a democracy where people vote. And, and I vote for this commissioner or this mayor. And, you know, that I want that person to make decisions on my behalf because I live in their community. And sometimes people get elected that you didn't vote for. <clears throat> so uh, I, th I think that that's part of the rub here is, is you have a lot of people elected that don't have health expertise, but they also don't have transportation expertise. They also don't have, <laughs> right. you know, parks expertise. Or, 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 and, so, and some of them have never run an organization that big either. And suddenly they're running this big organization. So... There's that, but I like this idea of, of mandating public health expertise on boards, and I'm going to be curious to, I'm going to watch it very closely to see how it's implemented and see how it affects the system. Yeah. And right. so, um, I, you know, I, I think it's a bit of an experiment, but, yeah. um, but I think the intentions and directions are good. Because it, it doesn't in any way really sort of empower that centralized state. Power is still devolved all the way down to the county. So it's going to yes. be, a, it's still going to be a county by county change. So the composition of the county commission in Spokane is going to change in the next couple of years. Right. So that's, there's an additional element to this that's kind of outside the scope of this conversation. But we're going to have five county commissioners instead of three in a couple of years. And the, the, the boundaries are getting redrawn. So there's probably actually going to be, a, there's going to be more progressive representation on the county commission, whether it's a majority or not remains to be seen. But those people will at least have a voice on, on the health board now, which it's such a mess. It's such a jumble, but at least it's, Theoretically, there's been a push for the right direction. So I, th I think it's important to clarify what, what is the Board of Health's responsibility? Yeah, yeah, please. So, so, I mean, one of the primary responsibilities of the Board of Health is to hire a health officer and to hire an administrator. Right. Sometimes they're the same person, usually not. So a health officer is an MD with a master's in public health. And, and just about everything that a health department does is under that health officer's medical license. So whether that's issuing a permit, uh, ordering a quarantine, um, issuing a birth certificate. Right. It all has a health officer signature on it. Right. And it's all because they have a medical license. And the Board of Health can't tell a health officer, you know, we don't think that person should be quarantined or we, we think that septic system should have been approved or we don't think that restaurant should have been closed because of the, the who 
food safety issues. No, it's just like a hospital board can't tell a heart surgeon, we really want you to do the heart surgery this way instead of that way. Right, because the, the, the idea is that this, this medical doctor has the training to make these decisions and a board doesn't. The board gets to pick which right. officer they hire, but then they don't get that day-to-day granular discretion over exactly. day-to-day decision making. Where the rub comes in then is when boards start to tell health officers how to do their job. And that's where some of the uncomfortability because the other things the boards do, they pass a budget, right. um, they pass policies. Like in 2013, our Board of Health in Grant County passed the second vaping ordinance in the state. Wow. Uh, that banned vaping in indoor public spaces. Right. And that was a very big deal. The health officer couldn't do that on his own. That had to be, uh, this was an ordinance that the, the board had authority to pass. Uh, so so, so the, the board has, has these, they, they set fees. So how much fee? How much, how much is a permit for that temporary food permit that that elected official had to get? How much, how much yeah. does that cost? So they, they have these, they definitely have these, these specific roles. But when it comes to like, so what, what fired this up was the hiring or firing of the health officer. Yeah. And yeah. is this health officer doing a good job or not? And a lot of this, and I, this probably a whole another podcast is, it still comes down to power, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And are people willing to share power or not? That's the key question and if you know nobody's going to say this outright that felt like the the subtext of everything that went on with bob lutz absolutely i mean in my opinion everything comes down to money turf or power right yeah <laughs> yeah or, or multiples so this was both this was all three of those things at least because there was a turf issue between the administrator and dr lutz as well so we, yeah like it, that was the, we got the trifecta in spokane yeah. i feel like i remember in, in grad school they, they we learned we studied power and politics and politics the definition I learned in grad school, and I still use it today, is the reality or perception of winners and losers. Right. And so if you're, if I'm assigning you the winner, Luke, that must be I'm the loser. Right. And so if we're saying we're going to do this mask mandate or this other flaw, then the people who disagree, it must you're the winners who wanted it and you're the losers who didn't want it. Right. No, we're doing this because this benefits everybody. But there's still this winner-loser conflict going on. This, this law doesn't go into effect until what 2022 so july of 22 yeah so less than a year from now have you started hearing and i don't actually i you correct me if i'm wrong it doesn't seem like this this work has started at least in the public in spokane yet but have you been hearing about how boards are thinking about sort of changing their bylaws to accommodate this law or how are these changes starting to be implemented i guess is the question i mean i've definitely heard of conversations occurring but a lot of this is waiting for this. So, so the last section of this law is the State Board of Health has got to make rules about it. Okay. And so uh, the rulemaking process needs to occur at the State Board of Health first. And that's, okay. that's one of the responsibilities that they do is create these, you know, how do these operationalize? Gotcha. How, okay. And so because this is just sort of this, this broad law. Yeah. So that hasn't happened yet. And then we also, between now and July of next year, we have a whole other legislative session. Right. And so um, there's always the possibility of things being proposed to modify it or correct it. I have not heard of anything. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying there will be, but, right. but there's also that chance as well. You mentioned that, the, so like, obviously there was a bunch of sausage that got made. The original bill, which was a lot more straightforward, got sh- sort of shunted into a new bill. I, I wouldn't say the original bill was straightforward. Okay, so that wasn't even that straightforward. Okay, good. Thank you for saying that. But at least less, maybe less sort of carve-out-y than what ended up happening, which is just a part of the, the political process. Do you think there's an opportunity to sort of get more straightforward over time? Or was this the bill that was going to get passed and we're going to have to live with this for the next 50 years, like the last bill? I think if uh, this, is, this is based on no intelligence. This is based on my own gut. Yeah. 
I think this is a dynamic situation. Okay. And so I, I would not be surprised if modifications came in at some point. I, I think this is, this is more dynamic than set in stone. Uh, I was thinking about it could either go one or two ways. Either like this is the the leak that helps the dam burst, and then you know it gets easier to change over time because we're more used to it. You know these law like the older and more entrenched laws get, the more they sort of just feel like part of the firmament. Or it was such a tough thing to do, and they got what they got, and it's like there's no nobody's going to have the political will to go back to the well. So I, I just and I just didn't know if there was uh, if you were feeling one way or the other. It sounds like you you think it might be at least you know. So, um, chance. I mean, one of the reasons this happened and got passed and was introduced originally by, by Governor Inslee, so, so for 10 years, public health system has been radically underfunded. Right. Okay, I want to talk about that too. And, cool. and, and, Go for it. I mean, and so back about 10 years ago, we developed something called Foundational Public Health Services, which is what are those public health services unique to governmental public health and should be provided to everybody? So this does not include things like WIC, or, or reproductive health services. Yeah. These are things like disease surveillance and policy and uh, environmental environmental health regulations and, and things like that, things that benefit everybody. Yeah. And so, and then we went about, okay, so if we del- provided that statewide, how much would it cost? How much, how mu- what's the gap between what we're doing now and what, what the ideal state is? And we determined it was $225 million a year. Okay. Which is a lot. And so... For years, we've been trying to get the legislature to fund it or at least put a down payment down on it, yeah. and we've been getting little dribs and drabs. Okay. So 225 was the magic number. What it's what had it been at historically, statewide? Did oh, I see I 70, don't remember that 72 thought. million? Is that right? Well, well so, so, the, so, so the public health system is funded by, by state government, local government, federal government, okay. and permits and fees. So it's, it's a very complex funding formula. Right. But... Uh, at that point, the state government was providing about $36 million a year in flexible county dollars for public health. Okay. And then they added another $28 million in foundational public health over time. But in this last session... Uh, so that $28 million is like about a, is about, that's like a tenth of what the need. Well, that was, that was yeah, that $28 was, was a fraction. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. The, the system got $150 million for this biennium, this wow. two-year budget. And then... 300 million promise for the next biennium. Wow. And so that's... So it's not all the way up, but it's it's multiples more than it was. Biggest investment in state history. And going back to that workforce issue, the, the system didn't want all that money up front because right. it's... It's it, going to take forever to spin up. To, yeah. to, to hire people, train people, get things up and running. Wow. Meanwhile, we're, we're still in the midst of a pandemic and, and, and the people running these agencies are still maxed out. Yeah. So. But it is, though. So you... You gave me these numbers earlier. It's an additional fifty million this year that's currently being spent. Then it goes to so that one hundred and fifty by biennium basically doubles year over year. So it's fifty million the first year, one hundred million the second year, and then you said it was going to be for twenty three and twenty four. I guess it'll be at one hundred and fifty million both those yes, years. So correct. it's a difference of going from twenty eight million to I guess one hundred and seventy eight million or something like that. Or is, is it yeah, 150 it, total? It, it, yeah, it's on top of the 28. Yeah, yeah, all right. So we're for, for, we're for foundational public health. So by 2023, we'll be at like, yeah, we'll be at like 178 of the, the 225 we think we need. Um, I think the 28 was biennium. Oh, wow. So, so okay. So 164. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
But anyway, much better. So twenty. Yeah, so now, so we've gone from basically doing twenty-eight million every two years to three hundred million every two years. So we've we've ten xed the huge. Yes, it's yes. huge. Okay, and it took the pandemic to do it. Uh, Jeff said he liked his uh, coffee as black as his soul earlier. So I feel like you were the right person to go down this road with it because we always have these deep, dark, hard conversations. And I actually feel, but then we always try to like end on a, on a light note. I don't want to end yet. I want to talk about a couple more things. But that, at least in the in the state of play, in the current like state of the way things are, that feels like okay. At least even if the law is imperfect, we at least have more funding to fund public health, and that's an unequivocal good. Yes, that is the legislature and the governor putting their money where their mouth is. Finally, that public yeah, health great. is important and, and and is a critical role in the state. That's yes. awesome. Okay, cool. I, I want to kind of go into this conclusion where we sort of blue sky a little bit, look at other um, places. But at first, I want to sort of sort of suggest that, like, okay, so we've got 50 more million this year, which is great. Again, big jump. How is the public health community trying to, like, fortify itself for a battle that isn't over yet, right? Like, so we've got this long-term, uh, long-term outlook is really, really good. We still have a pandemic to fight right now. So how are you hearing people, like, fortifying themselves for the next six months? I think the public health system is really taking things a day at a time. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's really about handling what's in front of your face today. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, um, a concern from a board member. I mean, right now the hot topic is schools. Um, the hot topic is third vaccine shot, Delta variant, healthcare, uh, the healthcare system being overwhelmed. Right. I mean, it's really about what's in front of your face. Yeah. Um, and so trying to, get vaccines to be more acceptable. Pandemic is not black and white. And, and so many people want to put it into black and white. Like, so if you get a vaccine, you know, they promised me if I got a vaccine that I wouldn't get COVID. Right. No, it's not black and white. Yeah, yeah. If I wear a mask, well, it's not black and white. It, yeah. It's a spectrum. It's shades right. of gray. And, and Shades and, of risk, yeah. And things, new things are being learned every day. So I remember, so like I said, my wife's a nurse. Yeah. And, and I've worked in public health for 20, since 1994. And so... And so I remember our friends and family asking us, so, so a year ago, how long is this thing going to last? <laughs> and so I'm, you know, in my, my wisdom, and both we sat down and talked about it. And we predicted conservatively the fall of 21. Okay. You know, the, va the vaccine will be out. And what neither of us considered were variant, you know, mutations and right. things getting worse. And right. so even me, who, who's not having to react to things right in front of my face, like like public health directors and health officers are and, and public health organizations, I don't know. And that makes me uncomfortable because I, I have three kids in school. Two of them are still too young to get vaccinated. And I, I would like to know these things. Uh, my wife and I love to travel the world with our kids. Yeah. And uh, we have family. She has family in England that we like to visit. And all that's been put on hold. Totally. And, you know, everyone's life's been put on hold because of this. And I'm weary, too. Everybody's weary. And so I think the, the public health system's job just got a lot harder. It was already hard, yeah. and it got harder. And that's, yeah. and that's sad because they're having to deal with an even more frustrated community. Yes, the, yes, the, the legislature has their back, which was nice. But I wish I knew. I wish I knew what the input. A lot of people are now saying this is this is never going to end, and it's something we have to live with. It's going to become endemic, in, in, yeah, indefinitely. Yeah, and I don't know. I'm such. I'm a social creature. I love. I love. Right. I love going out and doing things. And and I haven't done very much of that. <laughs> right. No. Totally. Let's let's get into sort of what a a more dynamic and maybe tightly sort of connected 
public health and healthcare system might look like. So we also like to sort of prefigure or something, a different world, different and, and maybe better, probably better than the one we have. Just out of the blue, an article got posted in the New Yorker about Costa Rica. And I wanted to just chat with it, you know, briefly with you to give get a sense of your response to this as a, as a public health professional. Like everybody should read this article. It's amazing and really, really, really fascinating because Costa Rica spends a lot less money per capita than we do and has better health outcomes than we do. Like I think middle lifespan death rate, which is like the years between like 15 and 65 or whatever is something like two thirds the rate of America. And they spend so much less on healthcare per capita than we do. And the answer there isn't just like, oh, universal healthcare. You know, it's like not like Medicare for all will make everything perfect although they do have a, uh, a socialized healthcare system. But this other thing they did was, in the 70s, they sort of tightly wove their public health infrastructure with their healthcare infrastructure. And the, the person that wrote it is a doctor, and so he sort of writes as in the collective we of, like, American healthcare providers, because he is one, in contrast to what Costa Rica does. So I just wanted to read it. It's kind of a long quote, but it's, it's fascinating and illuminating, and I want to get your thoughts on the other side. What set Costa Rica apart wasn't simply the amount it spent on healthcare. It was how the money was spent targeting the most readily preventable kinds of death and disability. That may sound like common sense, but medical systems seldom focus on any overarching outcome for the communities they serve. We doctors are reactive. We wait to see who arrives at our office and try to help with their, quote, chief complaint. We move on to the next person's chief complaint. What seems to be the problem? We don't ask what our town's most important health care needs are, let alone make a concerted effort to tackle them. If we were oriented toward public health as healthcare providers, we would have been in touch with all of our patients, if not everyone in the communities we serve, to schedule appointments for the vaccination against the coronavirus, the number three killer in, the, in America last year. We would have coordinated with public health officials to prevent cardiovascular disease, which is the number one killer, by jointly taking aim at high blood pressure and cholesterol, smoking, and dietary salt intake. We would have made a priority of preventing disease rather than just treating it, but we haven't. Am I crazy to think that that sounds a lot better than what we currently do? Yeah, and, and I would say the public health healthcare system has been working on that for the past 20 years. Yeah. What was interesting is one monument to that was 9-11. Oh, interesting. And so after 9-11, the system got flooded with resources for public health and healthcare to be more emergency prepared. Okay, yeah. And so, and, and so public health emergency preparedness response was born and and so we started working we started doing annual exercises together like pretending there was a big train derailment or or right. bus crash and we'd set up you know temporary care facilities or to, but sometimes these are actually setting up beds sometimes they're a tabletop and we started building these relationships with the healthcare system hmm. through emergency preparedness as well as fire ambulances uh, police and, and others right. and you, you want you you know when the emergency strikes your community you would expect that all these entities already know each other. If, if in an emergency, you're, you're calling the, I'm, I'm as a health director calling the fire chief and introducing myself. <laughs> right. That's a problem. You have a problem. Yeah. 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 So that was a, a great moment. Not 9-11, but, but the fact that, that suddenly we had these resources to work together. Yeah. Now those resources have been whittled away, way over time. Right. That, that foundation was created. And so you see a lot of public health and healthcare partnerships around chronic disease prevention. In Grant County, we targeted childhood obesity. Okay. And and we had we had these programs together, but but these are really just we had very minimal resources to do what we wanted to do, and they had actually minimal resources to do what they wanted to do. Yeah. And one of the issues has to do with data. Hmm. And so public health is really good at ha telling you what happened eighteen or twenty four months ago. 
right? Because it takes that long to process the data. If we had data in more real time, then we could tell you what's going on in the community. Would that take like digitized records or? Yeah, and direct pipelines and, and there's, yeah. there's other things in that regard. But a lot of health departments don't have the IT systems that can handle it or the, or the staff who can capture it and analyze it and produce reports out of it. Oh. And so that, that, that takes a lot of effort. And that's part of what this new money is for is to help modernize the public health system. Oh, cool. And so, and so that, that's really key. But to going back to, to, the, to the article and, you know, how we spend money in our country is a little whack. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've seen different numbers, but you know, of all health of all health spending in America, ninety eight percent is on healthcare and two percent is on public health, or, or ninety nine and one, or ninety six and four. I mean, it, it's really yeah. stark. Yeah. And so, what these other communities are doing, and these other countries are doing, are investing more in public health and prevention. Yeah. And so, so they ultimately have to spend less on healthcare. Right. They also spend a lot more on social health and ment- mental. I mean, we talk about homelessness right. a lot. Right. Yeah. My wife works as a nurse with the, with homeless people. Yeah. And a lot of the homeless problems are because of drugs and mental health issues. Yeah. Because we have this completely inadequate behavioral health system too. Right. So, um, yeah. So, so it's no surprise. And so, because of that, healthcare has become this this de facto responsible party for all kinds of things. Yeah. Because the, the upstream things have been either underfunded or torn or, or dismantled. Right. And so the emergency department becomes de facto for everything, just like this whole argument around what's the role of the police in your community. Right. And, and the because the police have to be mental health workers, social workers, yeah. you know, right. homeless advocates. They have to do all these things instead of just be police. Right. Um, which is, which has helped cause some of the, some of the issues. But here you have the hospitals doing this and it's really not their role. Yeah. Um, and I don't think they want that role. I remember, I remember the system with, with these, these sort of, we call them the frequent, the frequent flyers. There's, there's, there's groups of people that balance between the county jail and the emergency department at the hospital. Right. And, 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 and so suddenly the emergency department says, oh, this person must have gotten some treatment or got better. We haven't seen them in a month. Well, yeah, because they've been sitting in the jail. And as soon as they get released jail, something's going to happen. They're going to end up back in the emergency department. Right. And so this drives up our healthcare costs. Yeah because we don't have these systems in place. And it takes tremendous political will to put these systems in place because, and I read this in an article, I'm not, I'm not, this is not my own idea, but investing in prevention sometimes takes decades or a generation to see a result. Right, yeah. And, and so on our four-year election cycle, how's that gonna benefit the, per, the, the, the elected official invest in that unless they're really forward thinking, unless they're right. being really altruistic? There's, there's not a quick return on investment. The incentive structures are kind of out of whack for doing long-term planning. That's true in business, too. I mean, people are talking about how, like, you know, corporate structure has been so sort of contorted to around the, the quarterly profit cycle. Nobody can invest in long-term sort of stuff, like, around, specifically around, like, electric cars and fossil fuel stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of true across the board. Is part of it also, I, I literally just got, I, I've spent a decade, and I've, I'll admit I wasn't trying super hard, but as a person who just turned 40, it got, it seemed pretty pressing, but like it took me a decade to find a consistent, just general practitioner, just a family doctor to go in and just like talk about my aches and pains with, could not find one. And now I have one. It seems like a lot, like just that sort of family doc thing. I don't know if it's a product of consolidation or just sort of things going away or, or the profit motive for, you know, um, specialists are, more profitable. And so when healthcare systems get consolidated, they're, they're looking for the most profitable sort of avenues. But like, 
that strikes me as a huge problem if we want to do preventative health that people can't find, you know, a family doctor. But I thought if we kept private insurance, you could pick your doctor. <laughs> that's what I thought. I mean, that's what was. That's what I was told. I know. And I had a hard, you know, I've had a hard time finding that. So it's fair to say that there is, there's something in the, the system of capitalism, or at least the way that the healthcare system works now, that sort of disincentivizes preventative health. Technically, yes. Um, it doesn't have to, I'm guessing you would say, but it does. Yeah, and, and I'm really fascinated by something called value-based billing. And this has been attempted. I'm not too sure where it is in Washington State. I know it was proposed. I know there was some money to implement it. But I'm, I'm, I haven't been following it. Where instead of healthcare system getting reimbursed for providing a service, like, right. a, a, like a visit or an MRI or something, they're, rather, they're, they're paid by the health outcomes of the patient. Which just makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So, so whatever you need to do to get that patient to get their blood pressure down or, or healthy weight or to get their colonoscopy or you right. know, all that kind of stuff is, is really up to you as the healthcare system. And so, but, you know, these things are, are really tricky. Yeah. And so these healthcare systems are huge. You know, they, they, have, they have huge operating costs and they, they constantly need to, to eat in order to keep running. And that's why, I mean, the, I remember during the beginning of the pandemic, or, or beginning midway point, a lot of these healthcare systems were laying off nurses. Right. And yeah. I'm like, going, what the what? It was because they had stopped all their elective okay. procedures. Right. And that was that elective procedures are where a lot of them make their profit. And they didn't need these these staff to staff these 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 departments that were doing the elective procedures. I s- heard somewhere this is not a stat that I read. It was a sort of a conversation with a person who works there, but like Sacred Heart is down 300 nurses or something like that. That's one hospital with 300 fewer nurses than they had at the beginning of the pandemic. That's a huge problem. Right. But then on the other side, we're saying they can't find nurses. Right. Where, where, right. Did, where do these nurses go? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're around some, maybe, maybe some of them retired or went and did something else, but I don't quite understand. I've never worked a day in healthcare. I've always worked in public health. So right. I don't want to pretend to be an expert on it, but just from the, my third-party point of view, yeah, um, it, it's, it may not be the best system. I, I really like the idea of sort of shifting funds toward public health, toward those upstream sort of preventative things, and then also sort of reorienting our healthcare system around outcomes. Like, why wouldn't we do that? Right. Other than the profit motive. Yeah, I agree completely. And we have healthcare that are nonprofit. We have some that are government, like hospital districts, and we yeah. have some that are for-profit. Right. But, but – I don't see a lot of difference between the, the three. Yeah. I know there, there's difference in how they interact with the IRS uh, right. <laughs> and things like that. But to your point, though, as long as the payout structure is the same, as long as it's like sort of more like based on procedures, then they're even with a nonprofit or even with a government. I, I don't know about government's probably different because the procurement process is different. But even if a nonprofit hospital eats the same way a for-profit hospital does, you're necessarily going to sort of go where the funding is. And so the way that you treat is going to preference the, the, bill, the way the billing works, I guess, is what I'm saying. And yeah, they all got to eat. They're in competition with each other sometimes, right. too. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting to me, I mean, and, and then some of this is really dictated by the insurance industry. Right. I'm also not, I've never worked a day in insurance, and, and I don't pretend to completely understand it. Gosh dang it, was I fascinated this past week with what Delta Airlines did. But saying, if you're not vaccinated and you work for us, your health care premiums oh, just yeah. went up by $200 a month. Yeah, yeah. See that. And I was like, wow. Now, I'm, I've worked in places where there was, um, if somebody in my family used tobacco, there was like a, a tobacco premium that we'd have right. to pay. Totally. 
35 or 50 bucks. I don't know if it was a per month or per year. Yeah, and right. It never applied to us, so it wasn't an issue. Right. In, in light of like that. So the insurance industry is often very honest about where they, th- where they think their costs are. Yeah. And if they're saying, you, we need to charge you $200 more per month because you're not vaccinated, right. that's going to become a huge driver if that, if that takes off more. Perpetuates. Widely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so I, so so some of this is insurance. I mean, so you think about the four parts of the health system: behavioral health, public health, healthcare, and the insurance industry. So so my wife has dual citizenship in the UK, okay, because her dad is from there. Like I said, we have family there. What's fascinating, and I'm not advocating for the National Health Service here in the U.S. I don't I don't, I don't think politically that's feasible. Right. But but here, all of that's under one umbrella. Yeah. And we can talk about whether it's inefficient or efficient or not, but it's all under one umbrella, and so. And so they're not in competition with each other. Right. And they're all trying to work together for the same general outcome. And you can make decisions if you're all on the same team to be like, yeah, no, this is really more of a mental. We're going to shunt some funds to our mental health professionals. We're going to move some fun, some prevention funds, you know, starting with public health. But then we're going to work with our friends on the healthcare side of things to deploy maybe these like checks for cholesterol and stuff. We're going to prioritize prevention through the healthcare. Right. So toward the actual point of care which is the healthcare system with the wisdom of the public health system sort of providing that like population level sort of data and stuff. Yeah. And sh- yeah. Sharing of data. That's huge. Yeah. Cause they're all in one system. And then because the, the government is the payer, then the, in, the insurance, I mean, there is no insurance, but effectively like that, the person that plays that role is the, is the government itself. And there's no co-pays. And there's no co-pays. So yeah. it's pre- free at the point of service. You pay for it in taxes. And, and again, though, when it's a governmental-wide system, one of the big downfalls is that if, you know, the per- if the party in power doesn't like public health or, you know, just doesn't like, you know, universal health care or whatever, then they can sort of take steps to underfund it and stuff. But that's always, as long as we live in a democracy, that's probably always going to be the way that it is. But it does make so much more sense to have, you know, these four aspects working together in tandem toward the same goal without the fear of like, oh, pub- more of my, you know, healthcare dollars are going to public health, you know. It's really like a vertically integrated business or something it's like you know when we outsource a project you know that's money that doesn't come through our coffers you know you Mm -hmm. outsource a project to a contractor they get that money right that's kind of how our healthcare system works it's like all these little you know pieces when if you if you centralize the the deployment of income the money then it incentivizes teamwork yeah and and that might be how Costa Rica is able to get those outcomes Probably kind of kind of loop it back around, and, and but it's also an economy of scale. I mean, UK and and Costa Rica are much smaller than the US, right? And the US also has this uniqueness of fifty states that have tremendous authorities separate from federal government, and so um, yeah, it, it's a lot of things that work in other countries don't translate well here. We don't have a strongly centralized system, so it makes it harder to centralize things. Yes, it does, <laughs> it's, or, or near possible. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the Tenth Amendment, the Constitution, really speaks to that. Yeah, and and you know that basically police powers are at the state level, right? And that's part of public health is part of those police powers. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Is there anything we haven't talked about yet? We've been going for a while. Thank you so much for your time. Is there stuff that we haven't talked about that's important for non-wonks to know? Or, like, are there ways that we can sort of help you or help, you know, public health folks do their jobs better? Oh, wow. What a what an offer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you're really into public health, 
I would encourage you to become a member of the Washington State Public Health Association. Okay. There you go. All right. That's or or provide a link. You know, yeah, we'll provide a link. Or if if you don't want to be a member but you just want to support us, we have that donate bar. Now we are a five hundred one C six, so it's not tax deductible right now. We we are working on that issue. C six, you're like an advocacy organization, like a right? trade or so trade association. Oh, okay, gotcha. So we are the Public Health Trade Association. Okay. <laughs> Um, but uh, we certainly need we certainly need help. That the pandemic has hit us hard too. So so th- that that's one thing. Uh, but definitely uh, following us on social media, whether it's the Washington State Public Health Association or our advocacy arm, Public Health is Essential. Yeah, uh, we're pr- pretty active on on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and now on Instagram. Ooh. <laughs> Public health on Instagram. That's been a tough one for me. But, yes, I know it's important, <laughs> and I need to do more there. But, yes. Uh, uh, TikTok coming in uh, fall of 2022? or uh? I have created an account for us on TikTok, <laughs> but but um, that's even worse, yes. Yeah. Uh, nothing's been created yet. Oh, that's funny. i got to get my kids on that one. <laughs> Is it fair to also say that – I mean, one, I'm not going to name names or anything, but, like, you know, there was a person on Spokane's Health – board right now who like has been skeptical has been like publicly skeptical of vaccines in the past even before the pandemic so but that then the the response to why was this person chosen for the health board the elected official responded i'm vague booking here but i, I'm not, I don't want to get into a fight it basically was like nobody else wanted the job this guy wanted the job so the guy got the job because we needed we have bylaws and we needed to fill this position if people a thing that people could do in their specific communities if they care about this stuff is actually just paying more active attention to what's happening in public health in your individual communities. Well, what's interesting is prior to the pandemic, most people didn't know what their public health agency did. I mean, you, right. may, you, may, you may have gotten a food worker card or um, had to get a birth certificate, you know, you, this thin slice of yeah. interaction. But now people are suddenly very aware of public health does. Not only that, but, but what is a health officer? Right. And the broad powers they have. Right. And w- what role is the community, whether you like it or don't like it. Yeah. And so I, th- I think people are suddenly hyper aware of these things. I mean, more people have been watching Board of Health meetings of Absolutely. late. Absolutely. I'm at sure. Sc- at school board meetings, too. Ratings are way up. Way up. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing. I am not an opponent to tension, though. Yeah. And so, I mean, in working for boards for, for, for many years, I, I've worked, I've, I've been on boards where everybody just agreed with the executive director. Right. It's like, I think we should do this. That sounds great. Motion passes. Yeah. End of discussion. But having some tension around a topic really, I think, makes for a better product sometimes. Oh, totally. Because, yeah. because you know, you feel like more diverse interests are being represented, and it's just not just so homogenous. Right. So I don't mind having dissenters on a board of health as long as, you know, it's, it's out in the town square and we feel that tension, yeah. and, and and sometimes you get a better product because there's a, a person representing an opposing view that's sure. part of designing that product, right? So I'm not always opposed to that. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and and so uh, you know, of course, sometimes I have days where I say, well, you know, if everyone would just agree with me, then the world would be a better place. Right. But but Don't my wife, all. my wife would really disagree with that statement. Yeah. So yeah. I know it not to be true. <laughs> Well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on, man. Thanks for helping us uh, make sense of this. Anytime, Luke. This was a blast. Um, I love talking public health. Woo! And, I mean, shoot. I, I started this when I was getting into this when I was 22, and I guess got lucky to find a career that was so so diverse and adventurous and has taken me all kinds of interesting places. That's awesome, man. Well, we're glad you're still in it and uh, and making a difference. So, all right. Thanks well, so much, cheers. Man. Be well. See you. <laughs> 
want to give one last massive thanks to Jeff Ketchel for coming on and spending so much time with us. Thanks so much, man. This episode was produced by myself and Kayla Brooke. Say hi to Kayla, everyone. This is her first episode. The interview was recorded and edited by Connor Bacon, Range's stalwart companion for oh so many episodes now. And thanks to all of you out there listening. Now go, you know, my little health advice, go enjoy this weather. Fall's starting to hit. It feels really, really, really good. Not like you're going to burst into flames. Not like you're going to dry to a crisp like the Ronco food dehydrator. It's a little moist. It's a little chilly. It's fall. We like it here. One of those seasons not everybody gets. (laughs) All right. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.